hear us through your AirPods or see us on your laptop, how about meeting us in real life? Because we're taking Queer Money on the road this summer and fall. Visit QueerMoneyPodcast.com forward slash tour or the link in your podcast player to find out when we'll be in your neighborhood. David? Yes? I am so gay. Uh, yeah, I kind of knew that. Everyone knows that. <laughs> Duh. I'm quoting today's guest, Ash Beckham. Ash started her Ignite Boulder talk in 2013 with a quote, I am so gay. And she's been on a mission to spread inclusion far and wide and get more queer folks to discover the leaders inside of themselves ever since. Well, then we better get on with Queer Money episode 346 because Ash does have a big mission. So here we go. Oh, and stick around to the end to hear how you might get your free copy of Ash's book, Step Up. Now on with the show. You're listening to the Queer Money Podcast, personal finance with a rainbow twist. Queer Money is dedicated to financial independence, financial well-being, investing knowledge, and the intersection of all things money as an LGBTQ person. Queer Money is made possible by Capital One. Capital One believes that financial well-being includes your mental, physical, and financial health. Check out CapitalOne.com today. Cool. Welcome, Ash Beckham, to the show. We're excited to have you. Uh, Thanks so much for having me. I'm excited to be here. Of course. So I saw somewhere online on social media or whatever that you're so gay. So (laughs) what is that all about? (laughs) Right? I feel like that's such a, it's such a funny conversation to have. I feel like when you're, when you're coming out or you're having those conversations, it's not, you kind of like split the difference. I mean, I think people define, obviously to me, sexuality is a, is a spectrum for sure. But I feel like there was a time where, you know, you're, you're kind of either in the closet or a few people know, or you're kind of apologetically gay. And I feel like you, you get to the point in your life in your, whether it's stepping into your own power or whatever that is, where you, you define that very clearly. So there, I got to the point where that's who I was and, and, and I wasn't afraid to say it out loud. And that was a, a monumental step for me. And so I feel like a lot of people have that. And so that was my definition of it is that I was so okay, not just a little bit, not just thinking about it. not like dabbling, like I, that was it. That was a definitive statement. So you decided to like go on a stage and but in front of a couple hundred people on something that was going to be streamed online in perpetuity and just tell <laughs> <Right>. everybody. <laughs> I know it was so funny. And then after I had that conversation, I mean, after I did that and then I started to get these speaking inquiries, you know, you kind of had that second guessing piece of like, well, do they like, do they know what I'm going to talk about? Do they know that I'm gay? Am I going to come out again? And I remember my friends being like, Six words in, you say that. Like anybody that that is interested in in having you speak has seen that. Like they know exactly what they're getting. And so there was, I know there was like some some freedom in that. I guess you kind of like put yourself out there as a vulnerability and that judgment. But then at the same time, you just kind of you just kind of embrace it, and then all of a sudden it's easier because there's no like guessing. <laughs> yeah, everybody knows now, right? <laughs> right, exactly. <laughs> so liberating. Exactly. Right. <laughs> so we we just got done reading your book. I've actually, I've read it twice now. Love it. I think there's a lot for the community to take from it. I think in part because similar to what you're sort of addressing, sometimes being apologetically gay, I think we're very conditioned in a way, maybe because of society or maybe our own pressures where we're sort of like, I I can't be too out loud and too proud. I've got to be somewhat reserved because I don't want to disrupt my home life or, or upset my family or the church, whatever. So I think for a lot of us sort of we see ourselves in sort of this paradigm of being, we're conditioned to being, seeing ourselves as a minority group, even though we're actually quite a quite large group. So why was it important for you to write a book about stepping up and 
becoming a leader in your own community? Well, I think what was so important to me is I was lucky enough to be doing to speak to a bunch of different communities, right? So I was speaking to corporate organizations and associations and colleges and so many of those people that that I was having a conversation with. We were talking about leadership and what that looked like. You know, a lot of the themes that were in the book and, and how to really embrace that to take your own power and then what, right? Like I can be powerful, but then what kind of impact can I have? What kind of influence can I have? based on owning that power and really being authentic. And so many people that I spoke to that that I saw as leaders within their organizations would say, oh, well, when I graduate, I'll embrace those things. I'll make that difference. When I get that promotion, when I have so many direct reports, when I manage a budget line that is X, that's when I will. There was all these like waiting to get to a point. And, and these were people, if I, asked, if I asked the room, I would say, you know, who thinks they're a leader? And you'd get like, depending obviously on, on, who the constituents were, usually like 30% of the people would kind of raise their hand. And then I would say, who thinks the person sitting to their left is a leader? And everybody would raise their hand. So it wasn't, it was how we saw ourselves and how the people in the audience saw themselves. And so how do we create this leadership model that is not a finish line, but a practice and something you can start right now, that it doesn't matter how many direct reports you have, right? Like Mm -hmm. in the spaces that you control, that could be your home, that could be your cubicle, that could be your church, that could be you know, some sort of group that you have, you can be a leader in that context. And A, that's enough. B, it's a great space to practice that leadership and grow as a leader from, but we all have opportunities to be the person we want to be starting right now, not waiting until we have some sort of, you know, achievement that exists in the external world that really it's about how we see ourselves and thinking of the the world and the community that we can create when people step into that power, I, I think was really inspiring. And and to me, people, that was some, a message I wanted people to to hear that there was nothing nothing to wait for. We needed to do it now. And also it is a practice and these are tools that we can, and, and skills that we can hone and get better at to make ourselves a more well-rounded leader. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think one of the, the things when I, when you were just talking, I, I heard a little bit of what I think a lot of people now today refer to as imposter syndrome. Like, mm-hmm. who am I to step up? Who am I to do this? Why should I? And one of the things I love that you're pointing out here, and I think a lot of queer folks, we know that studies have shown that women do this, that we oftentimes look at a job description, whether it's for a new job or a promotion or something like that, and we immediately start discounting ourselves. I can't do this. I can't do that. Because we think we have to have these practical applications that fit 100% the job description. And kind of what you're talking about is whether it's a job or another position in society, we have practical experience all throughout our lives, or we have the opportunity to implement practical experience all throughout our lives. So if we want to reach for that promotion, or we want to prove to our boss that we're ready for a raise or a new new position, we can look to non- work life experience, maybe outside of work life experiences. And that's what I think you really kind of drive home in the book is there's so many opportunities in our lives to practice these eight ways of showing or practicing that we can become a leader. I completely agree. And what the old adage is, you know, you have, and I think that this transcends just, you know, gender in that way, but you you have a the straight, white, able-bodied, cisgendered guy who applies for a job and there's eight things that, eight qualifications 
and he has two and he thinks he's qualified and mm-hmm. you have a woman or you have someone of color or you have someone that's queer and they have seven. They're like, mm, I'm not quite there yet. Right? right. Like, and, and so how do we get over that? Like if conflict resolution is something that is required in a job or, or you know, having conflict resolution skills, like, have you ever been in a relationship? <laughs> like, you know what I mean? Like, how do we take those things and those lessons that we've learned? Or like, is it logistics? Getting my two kids out the dressed out the door and fed to go to school is pretty high end logistics. Like, am I going to put exactly that down? No, but at the same time, exactly like you said, these it's like these traditional skill sets that are you know learned in a classroom just don't apply anymore. As our as the work world has completely transformed from the pandemic, that we exist in these different spaces, we have to see our skill sets as more holistic and non-traditional and they have equal if not greater value than traditional skill sets because they've been applied in real life with results we've had positive and negative results so i think in the same way that these are kind of non-traditional or non-expected leadership skills i think we look at our entire skill set and really Mm -hmm. see okay how can we draw from that do we have room to grow of course absolutely but to say we've never done that i think is like you said selling yourself short and so it's always what would you say to your sibling if they were applying for the job or your best friend? Would you be like, mm, you're not quite there. You'd be like, you got that. Let's get <laughs> right. creative. Let's like figure out how you're going to answer those questions, right? Like how do we become our own best cheerleader and surround ourselves with people that are willing to do that too, right? Like how do we have our, our crew of people that really that, that build us up in that way to be like, yeah, yeah, you've got that. Like, let's talk it through. Let me tell you how great you are. Let me tell you how the challenges that you've faced throughout your life, right? Like, you, if you have been excluded, which so many of us have, right, then you know what it's like and how important it is to be included. And you've probably developed skill sets to bring people in rather than isolate people. That's a valuable skill set as well, right? So how are we like, just like you said, how are we looking at those things that are that are outside of our typical work skills that, that really are applicable and additive for us in our applications to our jobs? Absolutely. It's like that first season of Golden Girls when Rose found herself without a job and Dorothy and Blanche helped her do a resume. <laughs> Everybody exactly. needs people around them okay. like that. <laughs> we yes. always have to have either a Madonna or Golden Girls reference in the podcast. So there we go. We got one of them. Check that box. As a Jimmy, check. All right, we'll bring, we'll bring a Madonna later. <laughs> but I do love, you know, you know, if you don't see yourself as a leader and you can't think of any sort of interactions or history or, 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 or experiences that you've had that sort of give you those leadership experiences, then reading your book is a great opportunity to say, okay, how can I find a half dozen or so interactions every day, a week, where I can try just a little bit of the of the prescription that you're suggesting and slowly gain those experiences until I've mastered, you know, all of them ideally. Yeah. And I think exactly. what it does is it breaks it down in bite-sized chunks for people. And then for so many ways, it's they're low-risk situations, right? Like if you're trying to have extended conversations, if you're trying to use inclusive language, if you're trying to practice for example, saying what your pronouns are, like having that conversation at the grocery store or with a mom's group at the playground or, you know, whatever interaction it is, like the risk of that is pretty low. Like if if we're not doing things to me to grow as leaders where we're stumbling, then we're not doing it, right? Like if mm-hmm. we if we're tiptoeing through this minefield of saying the wrong thing or doing the wrong thing or or, or getting it wrong, we're doing it wrong. Like you, you have to fail. There has to be, there has to be some sort of failure rate or you're not, or you're just going to stay 
flat, which I think to me is such an important part of leadership is like, it's not something that you just like attain. Now I'm a leader. You know, it's not like you get your degree and you just have that forever, right? Like leadership changes because your your perspective changes. Your The broader your scope is changes. Therefore, how you see the world should change. Therefore, your leadership style changes. Like you're constantly growing as a leader. So you you know that you don't know it all. And it's not your responsibility to have the answers. It's to be willing to find the solutions with the help of other people, right? Like that's to me what what leaders are. Yeah. And I think to your point, failure's a requirement in that prescription, don't you think? Because if you've never failed, you, you must not have pushed yourself enough to really have learned anything, right? Exactly. I think it's like, you know, in, in whatever way, like you don't, you don't go out and run a marathon without training for it, right? Like you, when you're, if you're, if you're working out, like you, you're actually, the soreness is like breaking down muscles to build them back stronger. And I think that's what we do in our practice. Like it happens to our ego. It happens to our sense of awkwardness, right? Like we have to break those barriers. We have to sit in that awkward conversation of not knowing what to say, of screwing it up, of saying something offensive, like whatever we do of doing it wrong and kind of owning that and sitting at it and taking that as an opportunity to do it differently the next time, to, to learn from it, to know that we're, that we always have the room to grow. But again, if you don't stumble, like people are so afraid they're going to say the wrong thing, they say nothing. And then yeah. you're not, and then you're not getting anywhere. And to me, from what we spoke of earlier, you're going to get stepped over in, in, in promotions or in your personal pursuits, because you have to be willing to be in the room with people that have different opinions because those are the most creative and innovative organizations is where you have respectful discourse where opinions differ. You don't want 20 people that think like you, like that's that's not going to get you anywhere. So you have to be able to deal with those differences of opinions respectfully. That becomes a stale organization. Yeah, Yeah, exactly. So I think maybe, maybe the great place to start is with chapter one. (laughs) And I think, our national dialogue needs to maybe be more inclusive of this of this word right now with the tone of the conversation in the country, but empathy. And I think a lot of us, well, you, you articulate in the book, and I think this is, a lot of us like to think that we don't approach conversations or debates, whether it's political or it's about the next you know, product launch or whatever, but that we're open-minded and we're empathetic to other people's thoughts and opinions. But so often we go into these conversations, whatever they are, is... I'm right, you're wrong, and my job here is to, is to convince you. Whereas you talk in the book about the need to be open to other people's thoughts and opinions and not necessarily agree with them, but understand them. Right, absolutely. And I think that's like the root of the importance of empathy is not, it's just understanding where somebody else is coming from, like their why. How did they get to, you know, we have these very, very polarized ideas of on so many topics, right? But people, I mean, for the vast majority of people in the country, like people didn't just like wake up as what somebody on the opposite side would consider like a thoughtless jerk or like ignorant or whatever the things are that we say about the people that think differently than we do politically. Like they got there somehow, right? Mm -hmm, right. And so if I can understand how they got there, then I can understand them better. Not for the sake of changing their mind, but understand that there's a human on the other side of that that got there in a in a certain way. Like I, I went to a yeah, probably like four or five years ago when sanctuary cities were happening. I went to our local council meeting or whatever, and there were these very different ideas of what the town should do. And you sat there and you listened to both sides, and you could probably guess what side I landed on. But you heard these different opinions, and and it was so clear to me. I had lived in 
kind of a bubble in a different town where there wasn't a lot of discourse like this. And this was like very evenly divided and representative of what it looked like. I came to the away with, from it with the thought of like both sides love this town and they want to do what's best for this town. What they think is best for this town are very different things, but they both love this town, right? So you can find, I think you can find that commonality of what we're talking about. And I think once you, once you have that empathetic connection and you understand where somebody else is, then you can start to have conversations about things like facts and impacts and things like that. But if you just come in on your high, on your moral high horse or on your soapbox and start barking about how somebody got it wrong, I'm not going to listen to that either, right? Like I'm yeah. not, that's not a dialogue I want to have. So we have to think about, and at the end of the day, do I care if they change their mind? There's this great person. It was a trans student and his parent, and they were going into a Utah state senator's office when they were considering a bathroom bill. And they were with this lobbyist. And the, obviously the kid was really nervous and the dad was nervous and they like didn't know what to say. And, and the lobbyist said, hey, it's not, it's not your job to change their mind. It's your job to get them to doubt the certainty of their position just slightly. And to me, mm. that is like this just like crack open in, you know, it's not, I'm not saying your way is wrong. I'm just saying it's not the only way, right? Yeah, right. And that idea, and, and that takes more effort and it takes more vulnerability and not everybody's going to take it, but it creates a dialogue. And I think from what, you know, from what you said in the beginning, I couldn't agree more, like, what we're missing is dialogue. What we're missing is like a reasonable discussion around things like that. And obviously politicians are not having that because mm -hmm. of their vested interest in their continued political success. So that lands on us. That lands on dinner table conversations or playground conversations or church conversations, right? Where we can really have that dialogue at a basis where, where we start on this respectful. And again, it's not like this 15 second soundbite to get somebody to change who they're going to vote for, right? It's just like continuing dialogue about these topics that are always evolving and to have somebody on the other side that you, like the gun debate, we have a really good friend of my kid's friend at school and, and we have a very different opinion on guns. But when things happen, I'm like, well, I don't know. What do you think? Like, I don't, I can't empathize with that side. I don't know what that feels like, but I respect you. So let's like talk about it. Let me understand that side better you understand my side better and and does it change the world no but it it brings us closer to the center so i think that's additive right and and mm -hmm. it allows me to enter into conversations with more people that have different opinions and and have a little bit of knowledge of of that side of the conversation Capital One strives to inspire a better financial path for everyone including the LGBTQ+ community through access to credit tools to manage debt, and product features. Digital products such as CreditWise and Eno are designed to take the stress out of money by helping you manage credit, a key source of potential stress, and stay on top of spending without worrying all the time. Sign up for CreditWise for free today. I think one of the things that's coming through clear here is that we have to understand that the individual or in some cases, the corporation that we're talking to or about, or politician that we're talking to or about, has a certain set of life experiences that are very different, or even just slightly different than ours. Maybe it was one or two experiences in their lives that did change the way they think that makes it very different from us. With that in mind, when you think about 
corporations and what corporations are doing today and kind of the maybe some of the I guess anger is the right word. What would be your response to corporations or to folks who are saying, you tell me you love me, but you support this individual politically, or you tell me you love me, but you vote against me? How do we kind of balance that in our own minds? Yeah, I I mean, I think that that's hard. I think it's where we we all have to individually decide where where we draw the line right of what that looks like and i and i think it's really nuanced and i don't think that we have i don't think we make excuses for organizations but we can also look at the good that they do and see if that good outweighs what we perceive as the negative right and the, and the corporations have a variety of ways that they can be influential right is it I mean, it's their job their role is to make money and there are so many organizations that do good with that money internally externally within their communities and there's some that just don't and so i think the more we look into that i think if it's an organization that that we're affiliated with that employs us i think those are some really honest conversations to have if it's a company that we support that we buy products from then we can look at that as well and and maybe make different decisions i don't think we throw our hands up i think we can inquire into that and i think we have to make our own decisions on again where where we draw that line and how much of it feels like, you know, rainbow washing or whatever, whatever that is that just like putting a rainbow sticker on your June advertisements is a little bit different than having a float in the pride parade, having, you know, do those do medical benefits cover transition? Like, what are what are we what are we working with? How are we diving in? And that's like such a, to me, such a great part of if you're seeking employment right now, and, and what the job market looks like that organizations, it used to be kind of like hush hush, of like, well, this is, you know, if you work in the marketing department, I know that the the director is a lesbian, so you're going to be fine. It's going to be safe, right? And now it's like, if you don't have a section on your website that talks about where you land with diversity, equity, and inclusion, you as an organization are at a competitive disadvantage because that's what people are looking for. And so how do we hold companies accountable in that way? Like, it's a lot easier to find now. And so that, to me, is part of our personal social responsibility, both as an employee or prospective employee, and also as consumer. Yeah. yeah. You mentioned the story in your book of having the conversation with one of the, I don't know if he was a coach or oh, yeah. someone involved in the in the softball league. Yeah. And the fact that he had either had voted for or was supporting Trump, but at the same mm-hmm. time was a huge ally and loved you and your mm-hmm. family. Right. right. And I think it's sometimes hard for us to, we have to be able to stand in in a place where there is a little discomfort and be able to say, I still love this person. I still like being, this person is still an ally. This person is great for me. It just may be that there's something that's more important to them that is different for us. Absolutely. And in that, in that context, this was somebody that lived in rural West Virginia. The coal plants had been shut down. And as part of the you know rhetoric of the 16 campaign was bringing back the coal industry. And so this guy who I had known for years, who had like sent my wife and I a wedding gift, like, I mean, this guy like loved us. And, but that's where he was voting because he was on the verge of losing his house because he couldn't find work, right? And so the promise was, and he believed the promise. I think you can, you can break that down of whether the promise is believable or not later. But like to me, I had 
the privilege and I didn't see it in the moment, but like stepping back from it a little bit, I had the privilege to n- not be affected by the closure of that, right? Like my priority were more socially driven human rights issues where his were purely financial and, mm-hmm. and a means of survival and for the well-being of his family. And that's where he was staking his claim politically. And like, that's tough to argue with. You know what I mean? Like yeah. once I got to know what that was rooted in, like I knew this guy, I knew he wasn't, if you read the book, it's like immediately after the Access Hollywood tapes came out. And so this really misogynistic stuff that Trump was saying. And and so that to me was just like such a line in the sand. And I didn't, and I had this idea that like, good people knew that was a line in the sand and anybody that didn't was bad or misogynistic mm-hmm. or whatever. And then all of a sudden in my face was this guy who's like, had supported his daughter's softball, you know, organization in the area with his own blood, sweat and tears and wallet, right? And like, so this guy obviously wasn't a misogynist. He wasn't a homophobe. He wasn't any of these things, yet this is where, and so because I had a connection with him, he felt comfortable telling me why when I kind of made this flippant response about the tapes. And all of a sudden you're like, whoa, whoa, whoa. like every, you know, just like everybody's got a story and our willingness to learn it really broadens our perspective of the lines that we draw, especially around these just lightning rod issues now which right. is which is you know created and and made to drum up political support and increase political campaign donations but they also have this real life impact on people's lives and you know i i feel like knowing where that comes from is is one thing and again like getting to know you can there's always a them until you know somebody in your circle who's one of them right like that was always right. my thing with my family like <laughs> I don't want you to think like my parents' friends. I don't want them to think differently of me because I was gay. I want them to think differently of gay people because now they know one. Like I'm the same person I was before you knew, right? Like right. how do you change that? Then all of a sudden it's not a, it, the them is a much harder sell because it's one of us. And and that to me is, is kind of the, what changed hearts and minds. And so we just continue to have those conversations. And again, you're putting yourself out there. Like I, I get that that's not easy and I get that not everybody can do that. I would never charge anybody with that if they weren't comfortable. But if you can, I think it's critical to to be as out as possible. To me, that was a groundswell. It wasn't like, oh, my college roommate's gay or, you know, my brother's best friend is lesbian. Like what it turned into was like, my pediatrician is gay, right? Like people in our real lives that were out in the real things that they did and, you know, come out, come out wherever you are, really changed because now everybody knew somebody gay and that changed everything. Right. Yeah. Suddenly, and, all these gay people. Yes. Yeah. yeah, exactly. <laughs> I think that maybe that gives us an advantage as as queer people when we do come out, because that is it is there's a lot of forethought that has to go into thinking about. I mean, unless you've been outed by someone else, which is horrific if that happens. But when you do come out, I mean, even if you have been outed by someone else, there are you still have to come out to other people, right? Oh yeah. But that could be one of the advantages that we have as leaders is going through something like that. But at the same time, I think what we were just talking about, this idea of listening to what other people are saying or listening to their story or their reasons, I think that's a very... We all want a boss who truly listens to us, right? And so as a leader, you're going to have to learn how to listen to people's stories and not prejudge them based on 
something that you know about them before the story or even judge them after the story, but listen carefully as to what they're really saying. Absolutely. Because I feel like when people want to, when they're on a team, they want to feel like they belong. Like they want to feel that they have, that they're contributing. And in so many ways, not despite their diversity, but because like their value comes from the fact that they walked a very different path than I did. The way they see the world is different than the, because we just didn't do the same thing. Better, worse, harder, easier, whatever. The challenge that you face because of whatever diverse upbringing you have, and everybody has one, right? That is additive to problem solving in so many ways. There's this great, and I usually like butcher this, so I'll try to keep it pretty tight, but there are these two groups of people. There are two teams. One was very homogeneous, people all that all grew up in like the United States, and then a diverse group of people, and they grew up in a bunch of different places. And they were tasked with making a recipe. And they one of the ingredients were ketchup. And so the homogeneous group looks in the looks in the refrigerator. There's no ketchup. So they try to make a replacement for ketchup. Right. And so they kind of mess up the recipe and they don't do as well. The group that had people that grew up in different places, the one guy was like, well, we keep the ketchup in the cabinet. So he looked in the cabinet and of course there was ketchup there. It's like you're where where you came from it and what you did and, and how you lived your life and and how you resource things and what that is makes the team better at problem solving innovation, creativity, productivity, all of those things, because you just have more minds that see the world in a different way. Does that inevitably mean there'll be disagreements? Absolutely. But that's, that's what we want. Exactly. And that yeah. is that is how you excel as a team. And so it's, it's just seeing the world in a different way. And if I want you to feel valued for being on the team, for seeing the world in a different I need to know what got you there. I need to know some of those struggles, right? I need to know what your human experience is not to, you know, I, I should say like, just because I'm a lesbian, you don't want me on your team because you just landed the Subaru account, right? Like <laughs> you want me on your team because I have faced challenges in a different way than, than you have, not because my experience directly relates to the problem that we're trying to solve, but the way I solve problems is different than you. Therefore I'm additive to all problems situations. And so how do we, the way we make people feel that value is to really, like you said, listen to them and to listen to things that are, are different and not come up with a solution or try to change it. Right. These are like struggles that people have gone through that they figured out without your help. You just want to know what drives them. What's their, what's their why for their certain position, right? Why are they more introverted? Why do they, what makes them tick? And I think getting to know them as humans is really what, what does them. Yeah. And I think it's important for queer people to remember that this is reciprocal, right? We, 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 we're now expecting corporations to be diverse and be inclusive and to have a seat ready for me at the table when I arrive so that they can benefit from my unique experiences. But if we're going to be, if we really want to truly be a leader, we have to be reciprocally empathetic so that we can understand where the other side is coming from. And I think to your point with, with the groundskeeper that you were working with, it was a great opportunity to understand like, his number one most important thing was unfortunately not your number one most important thing because he's got a family to take care of um, mm -hmm. and that's his pri primary responsibility. So I think oftentimes queer people will come to the table where we're like, be prepared for all my differences. I'm going to espouse all these benefits upon you, but we have to do it likewise because that'll help us be better decision makers, create right. better outcomes. Absolutely. And I think so much of the time that we get caught up, especially in corporate environments is like, 
we go in and we think that we that there's nothing additive that the straight white cisgendered guy has right mm-hmm. that there's he's not going to bring anything to the table but his human experience is is just as valuable right does it get overplayed or overweighted potentially but when we create environments where there is that equality we can't if we want to be truly inclusive then our bar can't be people that think like us or act like us or whatever right it's got to be everybody with this bar of respectful dialogue discourse you know these these very basic things that aren't you have to prove like you don't you don't have to prove yourself to get a seat at the table right you just have to be respectful and and be willing to have honest conversations and be vulnerable if that's what it requires like you just got to come to the table with with everything and that has value too right and so i think you're right a lot of the times we we don't grant that reciprocity we're asking for something that we're not willing to do and i think that comes from a space of being excluded of not feeling valid like yeah. i i get that i get that where that comes from but like somewhere we have to break that yeah somewhere because- we have to break that chain we don't know if that cis white able-bodied man is the father of a trans girl and totally. as queer as i might be i have never been the parent of a queer or of a trans girl um, right. and i can't speak to that particular experience and, and he might be able to bring that unique quality to the discussion that we don't necessarily have and think of his allyship like that's the other thing like the, with the privilege of straight white cisgenderedness comes like he's going to be in the men's locker room, I'm never going to be there, right? He's going to, he has access to all of these places. And for this guy to be able to stand there and be like, mm, that's not really how you address pronouns. For him to be able to talk with his buddies in his fantasy football league about those things when they come up, to really be that ally that steps up, that ripple effect, I don't think you can overstate. Mm-hmm. So we we need to be able to empower that person to be impactful in in that way. Because I think so many people, they're like these aspiring allies, but they, you know, there's like, there's no place for me in the movement, or I'm always seen as like the bad guy because I'm this thing, right? And so, sure, they have to prove themselves to a certain extent, but like, how do we empower them to be that ally that we need them to be, knowing that they'll have access to places we never will? Yeah. And you just touched on, you know, advising somebody on the correct way, maybe to use pronouns or not use pronouns. But one of the points of the story of your book that we loved was the anecdote from the Philadelphia nonprofit where they talked about the idea of calling somebody in as opposed to oh, calling yeah. them out. And I think very often, and I think maybe we're 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 hardened, I guess just should say, from social media because we kind of think that's just how people talk with each other anymore. But in real sure. life, that's not how it's not the most productive way to do it. Could you maybe explain that story and, and, and talk about the benefit of calling somebody in once in a while and when it's appropriate to call them out? Yeah, absolutely. So this comes from Amber Hikes, who is brilliant. They used to be the the liaison for the city of Philadelphia for the mayor's office to the LGBTQ community and now is the chief diversity officer for the ACLU. So huge props, Amber Hikes, love. And what they explained was this calling in and calling out, or there's two different ways to handle it, right? So somebody says something in a meeting, let's say, and you have two options. You can call them in, which is kind of that like, maybe arm around them after the meeting, not a public display of what they said. This very empathetic reaching out of like, I'm not sure what you meant, but I want to tell you, this is what you said in the meeting. And this is maybe how it made certain people feel. It's kind of, they always just like, equated it with 
like spinach in your teeth, like you'd want to know, you'd want to tell somebody, you don't want to embarrass them in front of everybody. You want to like, just tell them. It's the like, you're bringing them in, you're like huddling them up to have them go out and be strong. It's like very careful, direct. You, you made a mistake or a misstep, or maybe I misunderstood you, but here are the impact of the things you said, things you did, things you did do, right? Mm -hmm. So that's the calling in. And the calling out is the very public and sometimes necessary derogatory language, racist language, you know, creating them categories, right? Like that is, is unacceptable and we don't do that. And it is it is establishing in the moment that some behavior is not acceptable in our group, right? Mm -hmm. And and those two differences to me are are so nuanced. And that is a what a what a great leader does is knowing when to use which. And I think they're both necessary, but we obviously, if, if you can think of yourself on, on the other side, if you said something wrong in public, like let's say, especially when we're creating these environments where we want people to try, where we're asking people to stretch themselves, where we're saying failure is a necessity, right? And, and, and we do that and then there's a mistake, the like public flogging that comes with it isn't going to make that person want to do it again or be better. It's going to make them shut up because they're so afraid that the repercussions of saying the wrong thing, that they're not going to say anything, right? It's the opposite of what we want because there's no growth there, but the calling in empowers them the next time to be better, to have those conversations, to maybe check something with you, to practice using pronouns, right? Like it gives you the opportunity to be better the next time where calling out again, sometimes very necessary, really draws a line in the sand and 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 maybe doesn't empower a lot of times the the allyship or the growth that we're looking for. So again, as a, as a leader, even though it's more difficult to do the call in, thinking of the times where that makes for a better group dynamic to make sure that, that that's something that maybe is taken care of on on the side. And then if the same same thing is repeated, obviously then calling out becomes more, but it's almost like a, a leadership role as a coach mentor in any way. And I think that that doesn't have to follow the way the org chart goes, right? right? Like you can do that as anybody because it's a private conversation. Yeah, and you just reminded me of an article I read last weekend and I wanted to share it with you before before the interview, but it talked about the silencing of America where people aren't having true honest dialogues with others face-to-face. -face, so not sharing all of their true opinions and values with others because based on what I assume you to believe, I might hold some of my beliefs to my chest because I don't want to be called out or, or start a whole debate. And so we're not learning what people truly think and feel. And so everybody's kind of put on putting on these errors. And then all of a sudden, you know, Kansas votes to support continuing abortion, right? And people are right, surprised. Exactly. Right. <laughs> and it's a lot of that. So I think, you know, for for a, a a true leader, whether you are the chief executive officer or your 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 uh, lower manager position, being able to figure out how when to call people out and when to engage them quietly is an art form that can really help encourage people to be open and honest with you so that you can get the best work out of them, thereby making a, that much of a better organization. And I think that, that your exact point is, is that as a leader, you can see yourself in a much more vulnerable, like your risk in diving into some of these conversations might feel significantly higher, right? You have so much more to lose, right? Mm -hmm. There's so many more eyes on you. You're 
career, your status, your position, your title, your whatever, right? Like it is riskier for you to do it, but nobody on your team is ever going to just step out that way if you don't do it first, Mm -hmm. right? If you don't have a crafted way to have these honest conversations, that if you're not the one that's willing to be vulnerable about what you're learning when you're making mistakes, like to me as a leader, like I don't want to hear how you've been awesome, right? Like obviously you're awesome you're in this role, you know, most likely, I guess you're awesome. You're in this role. I want to hear where you screwed up. I want to hear how you sent the wrong email. Like I want to hear what you did when you made a mistake. Right. And, and how you came back from that and what you learned, because that's me. Like we don't need our leaders to be perfect. We need them to be real. So their willingness to share those missteps to me is really ingrains and establishes that relationship of trust back and forth that the failure is okay and you'll survive it. Right. Mm-hmm. And, and I, and I, and again, it's easier to sit here in our you know respective rooms and have that conversation, but really diving in and knowing that like, again, you're, there's going to be some blowback, but to, you know, to start to have five minutes of every one-on-one that you have with your staff be about anything but work right or to tackle some of these topics or and it isn't even like topic specific but like to do some skill training on how to have a difficult conversation right and and that comes from trust and that comes from you know kind of taking off your armor first as as the leader it makes it a lot easier for people to follow through and that doesn't mean that you're like you know splayed open and vulnerable all the time but there are those moments of engagement that you have to be that example for your team or no one is going to fully believe that it's acceptable. Yeah. At the same time, I guess I, I do have to wonder though and get your thoughts on people protecting themselves because of the quickness in which today's society will cancel people mm-hmm. right? and how the exact same mindset or words can be used by one person and mm-hmm. people will be like, oh, we'll give them a pass or we'll give her a pass. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, but the mm-hmm. other person is immediately canceled and all of a sudden their career is free falling. Mm-hmm. So as a leader, how do I deal with that? But at the same time, culturally, how do we we need to react to this whole idea of this person needs to be done away with because they made a mistake in what they said or right. and they have come back and said, hey, this was a mistake. How do we deal with that? Right. Yeah. I think, you know, obviously social media is like a, a, a huge, a huge piece of that. And we see that happen with so many celebrities. And I also think that there's a piece of, I, I'm not saying that vulnerability is like going in and sharing the unedited version of your thoughts off the top of your head. Like, I still think it's super <laughs> intentional. And right. I think there's some education around that, right? Like, are you going to get it exactly right? No, but to go in and use your ignorance as an excuse, I don't think that works either, right? So there's a responsibility to educate ourselves around some of these conversations. So if we wanna delve into conversations about race, there's plenty of resources out there, plus we have a responsibility to have conversations with our friends of color or broaden our social media feed if we don't have friends of color and see what that looks like and really go in educated and having, again, to start the conversation around having difficult conversations, right? I don't think you just go in like right off the bat to your team and be like, let's talk about race, right? I think we go in with, how do we have respectful dialogue around topics that are of interest to all of us, right? Do we want to create some topics that are off limits? Like I know, you know, Facebook said that you couldn't 
talk about abortion anymore, right? Like they just like banned conversations, which to me is like ludicrous. They're going to tell adults what they can and cannot talk about. I get their intention behind that, but it's so much more effective if we can have people have these dialogues. I think you have it as if people want to have conversations around current events, it's something as a team that people can opt into, right? And, and that we really teach the skills to have respectful dialogue and debate and know when it's over to have the conversation. And again, to not go in as the leader, as somebody that needs to have all the answers, it's somebody that is also going through the learning process around things like that. So again, I think I think there's a mindfulness and I think there's an inevitable misstep, but I think there's a difference between stumbling and like falling off a chasm. And that comes from educating yourself before you think that you have all of the knowledge required or that your own personal experience is enough to get involved in a conversation around something that you have never experienced, right? Like yeah. I think a little education goes a long way to know word choice, what that looks like. And again, having friends and colleagues and and resources around you that have that experience that you can have these honest conversations being like, I don't want to be offensive. This is something I want to talk about. Are you comfortable having this conversation with me? Because a lot of times, you know, we've always been, you know, you guys have been in that spot where you're like, you're the one gay person. And so everybody wants to talk to you about all the gay things. And you're like, ah, too much. I can't do that right now. So, you know, I just want to have my beer. I just want to have my beer, right? Like, I don't, and it's like, I don't represent all gay people. Right. And like, almost, I'm like almost 50 year old lesbian mom. That's like, that's it. That's like my niche right now, right? Like, that's what I do. I can tell you a ton about that, right? But like, but everything else, like, I don't know all things about gay people. I don't know all things about trans people. I don't know all things. So I think knowing those resources, knowing how exhausting that is, but also knowing that we can kind of step into that role of being resourced and say, hey, I'd love to talk to you about this. Here's a great article. <laughs> yeah. Take a look, come back, and then let's have a conversation. Because yeah. I'm yeah. not here to, I'm here to have a dialogue with you, but educating you about it seems like too much for me. Like, that's on you. Let's go from there, right? Like, how do we have healthy boundaries and also know the incredible privilege we have to be able to be that resource for people? So I think it's an individual balance, but but we're but we're mindful, and also people need to educate themselves before they come to the table. Well, and you talk in the book about giving yourself as well as other people some grace. So when somebody mm -hmm. doesn't say something the right way, whether it's on social media or at the boardroom, the board meeting, you know, uh, you know, don't just you know, dismiss them out of hand as a racist or a homophobe or whatever it is their, their their aggression is. You know, we all sort of make mistakes, and you know, we're not obviously the ones to cast the first stone. So, you know, totally. maybe give somebody else some little bit of forgiveness, and that's when you broach the conversation to, to call them in and say, maybe this is an, an opportunity for for both of you, right? I can learn practice my empathy and 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 trying to educate you in a in a calling in sort of way. And you have an opportunity to grow and maybe not make that same mistake again. And I think the beauty of that is it then takes the weight off your shoulders, right? Like if you have somebody that said something and you want to call them in, now they know, right? Like you don't know what you don't know, but now you right. know. So what are you going to do, right? And so then now it's on them. Like I can't expect everybody to to understand those nuances or or what it feels like when, you know, if somebody uses the wrong pronouns or, or does whatever, right? Like I can't, if you've never gone through that, you can't expect to know the impact that that has. But in this opportunity to call you in, I am now telling you, you now have the choice to continue to do the same thing and be knowingly hurtful to others or not. It's on you. I'm here as a resource. But now all of a sudden this weight has lifted as opposed to that 
like expecting it to be different, expecting them to have this epiphany, expecting them to have this realization that how offensive they are. Like Mm -hmm. if they're not getting news and information that is telling them on the contrary, why would they change? There's no, like that epiphany just doesn't happen. How can we be proactive in doing that? And then if they continue to do it, then do you wash your hands of them? Absolutely. Then do you dismiss them out of hand? Sure. I'll give you that. But if you're not willing to engage, at least in some way to say that, whether that's like sending them a DM, you know what I mean? Like, let them be somebody you even know. Like, obviously, the calling in and in a personal conversation is a lot easier. But it, in, in that other way, then then you then you make the decision if you want to continue to support them, continue to follow them, continue to whatever, or if you want to walk away. Yeah. But to do nothing and expect change, like we have to be willing to change if we want to see change. And a lot of times, that change is having that uncomfortable conversation. Right. Yeah, and you know, I think. The other thing, idea of grace, we have to remember where people are coming from, right? You know, especially for for queer people and young queer people, they have a very lived, very different lived experience than somebody who may be 50, 60, 70 year old queer person. And and the word choices that we have are definitely related to our life experience, right? We we learn certain words during our lives and we use them over and over again until we know something better right until we Absolutely. until it, it's, i think it's the quote that is attributed to my angelou all the time do what you know until you know something better and then do do something better and so i think that there's a, some grace and this is a leadership opportunity or learning skill that a lot of young queer kids can learn or or be able to practice today is actually helping instead of dismissing but actually helping older queer people, boomers, people in generations that don't have the day-to-day kind of contact with maybe what they are familiar with or what they're seeing on Reddit or what they're seeing on Discord or these various places where they're having these kind of conversations on a regular basis, other people may not be. Absolutely. And I think that, that, and again, in so many of these conversations, it's a two-way street, right? It's so Mm -hmm. easy, even within our community, for the you know, I remember going in and speaking somewhere and somebody's like, how do you identify? And I'm like, I'm a lesbian. And they're like, that's it. And I was like, well, yeah, that's it. So like, basic. That's, that's You're like, not queer that's enough. All that's all I got, right? <laughs> and, and, I, and then I was on something else where like there was a, a queer woman that was on it and she would never have identified as a lesbian. Like that isn't how she would identify. She would identify as a queer woman. And so it's easy to just, you know, it's the old version of like, I used to have to walk up the hill two ways to school, right? When I was gay, you could, you know what I mean? You couldn't go in the bar and you never, you you know, you couldn't have your hair cut shorter than whatever, whatever, you know what I mean? Like there's always like weird things of like, you don't know because you haven't done it. So the older generation dismisses the younger generation. And then the younger generation was like, you weren't brave enough to live how I'm living, right? If you would have been this brave, all the old butch dykes, you know, people are like, well, well, you should have been, you're really trans. You just didn't have the balls to do it. Well, well figuratively, but you, know what I mean? <laughs> you, you couldn't do it, right? But like, what are we even talking about? Like, none of those struggles are easy, right? Yeah, so like, right. if you think as a younger person that having a conversation with somebody that's older, that like you said, like, it was really hard for me to use queer for a really long time. It took me a long time to embrace that word because it had such a negative connotation to me. Like it was something that shouldn't be said. And then it was something I was called. 
and none of those were positive, right? right. And I love the reclaiming of or whatever, but like still for me, it's it's stuck. It was hard. Mm-hmm. But to think like when we think of the possibility from the recent case that marriage equality could be revoked and you are a 20 something and it's all you've known like that there is no way that you can you have to get to know somebody to know what it was like mm-hmm. to know what stonewall was like right and like know the history like stonewall isn't where pride started stonewall was all the people that couldn't get into the high end straight white gay boy clubs right and so all the trans people all the lesbians all the people that are queer all the people that were gender nonconforming, like they went to stonewall and they got picked on because they were marginalized within the community and then they got really pissed off right yeah. like that's what pride was that's what stonewall was like let's be honest about what it was that even within our own community we marginalize and then it's our responsibility to stand for those people so i feel like i a little bit went on a tangent there but but i feel like there's there's such a huge piece of like it's incredibly freeing to see to me a 20 something or a high school kid who is non-binary and like that doesn't discount my gayness or like my claim of being a lesbian but like i love that and for younger people to see like it sucked and it can get taken away and it's closer than it's ever been and mm-hmm. here's how it used to suck let's make sure we never get back there right like that dialogue is invaluable to me. And so like just dismissing each other out of hand, like let's just sit down and have a conversation. Did you have a heart or did I have a, who gives a shit? Right. Like (laughs) we're all gay and like, let's figure it out. And can I help you? And can you help me? Yes. Like let's have it be mutually beneficial. Yes. And move together. Like as a community, let's not leave anybody behind. Let's not leave the people that weren't gay enough behind. Let's mm-hmm. not leave the people who can't decide between gender behind, right? Like, because gender nonconformity is like confusing to me because it was very linear when I was a lesbian. Like, you got to blow all that shit up, I think, yeah. because we're moving together as a community and we're not leaving anybody behind again. Like yeah. that, that's what happened to me in the for the trans community. To me, like there was a point that the bathroom bill was happening where we collectively could have cut our losses and been like, well, trans, I don't know, it doesn't have to do with sexuality, gay, straight, you know, like gay, lesbian, like, let's just go. Sorry, guys. You know what I mean? Like, but no, that's it. Like, we will never leave anyone behind again. And so to do that, we have to understand everybody that's at the margins. And now to me, you've got these like, old, this older generation that's at the margins, and we can't let that go. There's too much, too much history, too much hard work, too much blood, sweat and tears too much of all the stuff that got us where we are to leave that behind either. Absolutely. And, and you know, I, I think putting this in kind of the the leadership context and the opportunity that folks have, I think that for a lot of us who are, I'm doing air quotes here, people, older gay and lesbian people, we've are, we've gone through the experience of sitting across the table from a boss who is cis white or cis, maybe even a person of color who just didn't understand, right? They had mm-hmm. never had a gay or lesbian person on their team. And we had the opportunity to come out to them to help them understand or see by our actions that we are just like everyone else. Mm-hmm. The same thing is going to happen to a lot of these young folks who are gender nonconforming, who are, right. I mean, we're seeing it now definitely happening with trans folks. A lot of trans folks are are having to sit down and have these kind of conversations with their peers at work, with their bosses at work. And this practice on those of us who are 
there to be your support system so that it's not as a difficult conversation. Will it be scary? Absolutely. Will it be difficult? Still, yes. But make it a little bit easier by practicing on those of us who are here to support you before you have to do that in front of a cis straight white man or a, a black Baptist who is very adamantly opposed to homosexuality. You're going to have to have those con- kind of conversations. And this is where your whole this whole idea of practicing your leadership skills comes into play, especially for those of us who are part of the LGBTQ community. I agree. And I think there's such a, a beautiful piece there because no matter how inclusive and how supportive and how amazing you make an organization, you don't go to the grocery store at work. You have clients that are outside of work, right? Like you are going to interact with people that are outside of this culture that feels so safe. Yeah. And, and that's a perfect way, like you said, for you to practice what that feels like to have those conversations. And I think as a leader, you don't just like dial in on your one employee of color or your one trans employee and ask these questions. You're asking questions of all of your employees. You know, for example, like what one thing would allow you to be more authentic at work? Right. What would be what and and then like what's one thing we could change to get there? You know, yeah. what what would allow you to bring yourself more fully to work? Maybe that's a schedule adjustment. Maybe that's certain accommodations around technology, like whatever it is, whatever, whatever the thing is. But like we don't just like go to people that we think are struggling or go to people that are diverse and be like, hey, I'm here, let's do it. Like this is you're culturally creating something that's inclusive. And as a leader, you have a responsibility and a willingness to listen to what those differences are. And does that mean that the first thing the trans person is going to say when you ask them that question is like, we need bathrooms that are all gender, right? Probably not. They might just need a, I don't know, a different access point for work, like whatever, whatever it is. But like, eventually, when you start to listen to like, what can we do to make you be more authentic here? To make you be your more full self here and how and, and also let's come up with like i'm i can't answer that question let's come up with answers together what one thing can we change to make that happen then all of a sudden it's a question that is open to everybody and then you're making a more inclusive place across the board because not all diversities are seen right mm-hmm. you don't know who's taking care of their sick parent at home you don't know how mm-hmm. it has a child with disabilities right you don't you don't know what's happening but a lot of those accommodations really allow you to connect to what that diversity is for each individual employee. Again, not because of the diversity you can see or that they display, but that we all have different needs and how are we most accommodating as leaders to those. Yeah, I love that. The book is very profound and prescriptive. And I think I always know it's a good interview when we 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 don't cover half the the predetermined questions. <laughs> then, uh, then I was like, we've got to rein it in because you only have like an hour. <laughs> yeah, right, right, right. right. Uh, and you got to cut some of it. Folks, yeah, thanks for, for sure. paying attention and staying yeah. on this long with us. So I highly recommend, David, I highly recommend that everybody get a copy of this book. Where can they do that? Yeah, absolutely. So you can do it through my website, through Amazon, Barnes & Noble, and independent bookstores. Those are bookshop.org is a great place to, to support indie bookstores. And so any of those options are are there and open to you. And anybody who pays attention to our show at all, you know how to possibly get access to a free copy of the book after the episode is released. More information at the end of the show. Ash, where can our listeners and viewers track you down on social media and keep up with all things Ash Beckham? Oh, absolutely. So my website is ashbeckham.com. And then I'm on Facebook and Twitter at Ash Beckham. And then I 
blew the Instagram one. So that's the Ash Beckham. So it is, <laughs> is a little bit, a little bit late to that one. So anyway, so yeah, those, those three and love to be interactive and, and continue any of the conversation. And as we said in the intro, please make sure you check out Ash's Ignite Talk on YouTube. It is not only eye-opening, but very well done and entertaining. Yeah, very entertaining. <laughs> I appreciate that. Thank you so much. Make sure to check out more ways that Capital One can help you achieve financial well-being at CapitalOne.com. That's CapitalOne.com. Thank you for listening. Here's your takeaway from this episode. Until you start looking for it, it may be hard to see, but each and every day, we all have an opportunity to be an everyday leader. So get a copy of Ash's book, Step Up, and follow the steps she's outlined for us. To win a free copy of Ash's book, and actually every book featured on the Queer Money Podcast, subscribe to the Queer Money Podcast email list in your podcast player. Then join us this Thursday for another bonus Queer Money episode, and next Tuesday, when we share nine healthy money habits to help you survive the holidays. Have a great week. From Los Angeles, California to Winooski, Vermont, we're taking queer money on the road. Join us as we gamify personal finance with Queer Money Bingo or catch our signature Live Fabulously, Not Fabulously Broke Talk and so much more in between. Check out QueerMoneyPodcast.com forward slash tour or the link in your podcast player regularly for date and location updates.